sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpern. Today's guest is regarded as one of the most skillful and innovative athletes in the sport, Jason Rao. Jason shared some interesting stories from his early days in the sport, training with future UFC champions at Matt Serra's gym in New York, and also training with John Danaher and the DDS when they initially broke on the scene. We also discussed some future trends that Jason sees in the sport, as well as some of his coaching philosophies when it comes to preparing for competition. If you enjoy the podcast, it really helps if you can subscribe, leave us up to a five-star review, and also share with your friends. As well, if you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Inside Position, you can stay up to date on behind-the-scenes content and future guests. But for now, let's get back to another episode of Inside Position with Jason Rao. Hey, Jason. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Of course, Tom. Thanks for having me. I think I came across you first after you medaled at ADCC Trials. And I noticed like you had a very submission-heavy style and a lot of innovative like new moves that I hadn't seen before. I was just wondering how you developed that kind of creative style. Definitely, I feel a lot of credit for that it comes to like my instructors, like specifically like training a lot with John Danaher and, you know, and those guys and, and Eddie Cummings as well. Uh, working with guys like that imparts this like uh, problem solving like mentality on you. So you almost can, I don't want to say teach yourself jujitsu, but, you know, I before I started training at, at Henzo's, you know, I would kind of you know watch a lot of guys and just try to emulate what they were doing. But like the big thing about learning under John and you know Eddie Gordon and those guys was that they all have this like problem solving mindset. So when they, you know, when they encounter some type of issue in the training room, it's not, you know, of course you can you can ask ask like a superior you know practitioner ask them uh, you know how to solve that issue. But you kind of develop this idea that you can kind of troubleshoot it yourself and. You know, you come up with different solutions, you try them out in training and like, you know, like like the same process that a scientist would, you know, develop by hypothesis, hypothesis, test it out and, you know, determine whether it's true or not. So I very much take that approach, you know, in training. And and at this point in my career, like, you know, I don't have an instructor or anything. I'm I'm pretty much I'm the instructor for many people. And, you know, I still feel like I can innovate and develop new things because of that mentality. Yeah, around that time as well, you mentioned training with Eddie Cummings and them. There was a lot of guys training, especially in New York with Danaher, that had that problem-solving mentality. Do you feel that that was like a lucky time that you were training there, that you came across? There was, I mean, it's crazy how many good people were in that generation. Definitely, there was like a time at, at Henzo's where it was a very special time. And, you know, it's probably never going to be like that again. But it was like all people with like a... And again, I think that mentality was imparted from you know, coming from the top, but like all people who were, you know, high level competitors and like willing to like adopt that mindset, kind of collaborating together. And that's, that's kind of what it was. Like, obviously, you know, like John Gordon, Eddie, Gary, those guys kind of at the top, it was, it was a a lot of a collaboration. Like someone would come up with some type of solution. Everyone would kind of look at it, try it out and like add their own little like variations or tweaks. And and that, I think in any training room, that's kind of the, I think the mentality you want to have. You know, generally as a team, depending on what competitions are coming up, you know, you're going to encounter these like core problems from all these positions and, and like everyone should kind of be working on it together. You know what I mean? And maybe there's someone kind of leading that charge, but you know, there's no reason a blue belt or a purple belt can't come up with like an interesting solution that 
can be played with and tweaked and, and made to be effective. And how was it coming up as part of that like DDS style competition team? Like how was the training with Gordon when he was young? Was Eddie Cummings just pulling the legs off everyone every day? It was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, so I was, I started training there uh, like 2016 a little bit, but like more consistently in 2017 where I would go, you know, pretty much every day. And uh, it was definitely a special time. I think um, it was before anyone really, with the exception of like Gordon, Gary, and Eddie. And at that point, Eddie was kind of not there anymore. So he kind of branched off, but I still would go train with him. He was at Henslow Gracie Fight Academy. So you had like the Blue Basement, which is in New York City, Manhattan, and then Henslow Gracie Fight Academy, which is in Brooklyn. They're like, you know, as the crow flies, like a couple miles apart. But like Eddie would be there with like John Callistein, who was also very, uh, you know, helpful to me. And then like you had the guys in the Blue Basement. So it was really the same school, but they were just not training together. But um, But it was definitely a special time. And especially then, like the like the submission oriented style that you see a lot more today, like uh, is wasn't so prevalent. So it was kind of like, you know, I don't want to say myself was, but like I was, you know, I got to see those guys kind of leading the charge in that movement. And now you can see how different jujitsu is today compared to what how it was like three or four years ago. And were you really training differently, or was it just a lot of disciplined people together on the same track? It wasn't the like the intensity of the training was super crazy or anything like Danaher would always do. We always do six rounds. Usually. I mean, I don't know what they do at new wave now, but it would always be six rounds, usually three positional rounds, three open rounds. So it was pretty much the same thing every time. Sometimes we do a few more positional rounds, but you know, and you would do uh, positions that like, you know, would cover those kind of major submission positions that we would work. And it was really, I think of that and, and just the the level of technique in the room, you know, like like especially if you had never, you know, been to a John Danaher class or seen this stuff taught, it was like mind blowing. Like holy shit! Like you know, it, when I first started going there, it was like everything he taught was almost like immediately actionable. I could use in training. Like you know, sometimes you train at a gym. Like all right, like this class, this really worked for me. This stuff maybe didn't work so much, but it was like wow, this is all good. And yeah, it was just like by today's standards, the stuff he was showing is like pretty standard among the – at least the stuff he was showing then is pretty like standard among the jiu-jitsu community now. But like for the time, it was completely you know revolutionary and nobody else was doing that stuff at all or had any knowledge of it. So I think um, you know obviously they were kind of leading the charge and part of the reason a lot of them were so successful is because they had access to this information that nobody else had at the time. Now it's definitely more, more widespread. There's a point you put the person saddle, the match was over every time. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or even things like using the Kimura more as a position instead of just only doing it from side control, things like that. I remember even hearing a Danaher back when he was helping GSP coach the Ultimate Fighter, and everyone used to talk of him as a coach for black belts. Like the black belts want him to be their coach. And that was back then when he had hair and everything. I was always yeah. wondering, like, was it just a bit of mystique? I came up under Matt Sarah. So, you know, Matt Sarah, when Danaher first started training, Matt was like his first instructor. Like it was oh, at yeah. Henzo Gracie Academy. And like, I think at this point, Henzo was probably not teaching as much. So it was like Matt Sarah and Ricardo Almeida. And that's when Danaher started training. So Matt and Danaher are very close. Um, so like, I always kind of, I almost had that like in to get in there just because like, like I was a Matt Sarah student and 
you know, Danaher was very close with my instructor. So, and, and I had always like heard about John Danaher. Like I knew he was GSP's coach and stuff, but like, um, I had always heard about him like through people at the Academy because like he was teaching at Hensel Gracie Academy when I was like at Matt Sarah's gym. I mean, you know, they're both New York and John Danaher taught a few seminars at, at Sarah's, like when I was a white and blue belt and stuff like that. So I was, and I had gone there very sporadically, like maybe once. Remember, I would go there like every year on like, um, what was it? I think it was like Labor Day or Memorial Day. My buddy, Eric Sherman, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he, he's a Henzo Gracie black belt. He was originally a Sarah guy. He was a brown ball in the Matt Sarah. Then he moved to the city and he was telling me this guy, John Donner is fucking amazing. You got to come here. So I would come like very sporadically over the years. And every time I went, I was like, this technique is amazing. Like I would always be able to utilize it right away. So I always knew. And then. But there was never any like crazy high level competitors. I know he was more focused on the MMA guys. And then like when Eddie and Gary and Gordon came along, then I was like, shit, I gotta, I gotta be training here consistently. You're a black belt under Matt Sarah as well. How was it coming up training? Were you training with a lot of MMA guys throughout the year? And how did that affect your style? Matt had two schools when I first started. Like there was always a lot of MMA guys. Like I trained a lot with like Chris Weidman coming up. So when I was a white belt, so Chris Bobbin was ADCC in 2009. So like right – so I started training in 2010. So like right after I started training, like I remember hearing about Chris. Like he wasn't in the UFC yet, but he had, he had only been grappling for like a year and he was already in ADCC. And you know, he had a good match with Andre Galvao. But I remember uh, – I didn't get to train with him much until I like became like a purple and a brown belt. But like I trained with Ally Aquinta a lot, Aljamain Sterling, like the current UFC champion. I trained with him, you know tons over the years um so there's always a lot of mma guys but kind of we never really had like a jujitsu competition team but then like i would say like when i started going to like henzo's and around that time i got my black belt like i was like getting much more serious about competing and then nick ronan started coming up and we started kind of developing some guys that were like you know the like jujitsu competitors but while still having the mma team because like matt matt was always kind of you know, we always had a big academy, but it was always kind of like more focused on the MMA team. So you were probably doing half your training with Danaher and them, and were you doing half still in Sarah's, or how was the split? Well, so I worked at Sarah's, so I I, I taught for Matt for like ten, almost ten years. So I, I got as a blue belt, like right after I got my blue belt, I got a job at the desk there, so like doing like sales behind the desk. So I was like just at the academy all the time, and then when I was a pro ball, I started teaching some classes. And like, as I got to be like a brown belt, I basically got a full-time job there teaching. So yeah, so I was, I would pretty much go to Henzo's like in the mornings, you know, for the morning, the afternoon session, I would come back and teach every night. There was like a period where Henzo's used to be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m. and noon, then Tuesday, Thursday, just at noon. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would train both sessions and I would train again at night. So I was doing like three days for a while there. And then I would obviously bring back the stuff I learned and teach it to the students. But I, it was almost like, I mean, at, at Sarah's, we did have like a, like a few really, really good guys. Maybe not all of them competed, but like some, some of them are very good. But I would like, you know, take the stuff I learned and then like try it on my students, you know, st stuff like that. But that was another thing that was, I, I think was great about Henzo's was like you have these like core group of high level guys. But then there was like a hundred people in the class, so you kind of had the necessary like amount of bodies and body types, and like people people of lesser skill to employ these moves on. Like if you're in a room of 
like 10 killers like around your level like good luck fucking learning any good luck getting any new moves on people like unless you do very focused positional training or you're not going like hard every round you know you would you do like a few rounds with like you know i would go with like forward in one round and you know maybe a toss in one round and then like i'll go with guys i was better than and like try to work that stuff employ new stuff in my game yeah because i felt that over the last few years we've been doing a lot of smaller sessions because we've had to like you know in people's garages or smaller gyms things like that and everyone is almost too tough so you're drilling all these new positions and then you're trying to use them in the sparring and it's very difficult like when you're when you're not an expert in it so i was wondering like was that how you started coming up with some of maybe your own unique style? Because I would always wonder, how do people add new moves to their game? You know, I want to add new things to my game, but I don't want to necessarily waste three to six months working on something that's not going to work at the high level. So what was your process for adding new positions, new techniques, things like that? I would do positional training, whatever the position is, like, and try to, like, diagnose that problem and do positional rounds. And I think not like drilling like mindless like repetition where you like drill a barrel roll a hundred times like although i think that can serve its purpose in, in certain senses but like taking a position like okay like saddle is a perfect example the person hides the heel and turns out like what are things i can do here and and you know work with a partner who's not like you know you're not rolling necessarily but like have them turn like does this grip feel good does this grip feel good like play with different ways you can put different wedges in and you know try to get a feel like how does this feel uh to the person have them give you feedback and then you try it in training maybe on a lesser skilled person first if the person's not giving the right reaction you tell them what the reaction is like if you put like you know i would continuously try to put myself in a position and that that definitely comes from being like a higher level person in the room you're in if i can continuously dictate the role to go to a specific position i can work that position very quickly and get good at it. You know, so if I roll with like a blue or purple belt and I want to work this position, I just put the match there over and over and over. I don't even need to start in the position. I just make it, you know, if you're better than the person, you can make it happen. It's almost like and active it, drilling or something. Yes, exactly. And then like you like try to get that reaction to happen. If they don't give the reaction, I just tell them, hey, like when you're in saddle, you should turn this way, like turn your toes. And then I try the move, you know, or I go with someone who I know knows the right reaction. Because, like, you, you have training partners, for example. Like, I have some purple belts who, like, their leg defense is phenomenal. But, like, the, not that the rest of their game is not good, but, like, maybe their like their leg defense is, like, black belt level. But the rest of their game is like kind of purple belt level. So, I like, with them, okay, let me work my leg lock offense with these guys. Like, I know if I just pass their guard, I'll, like, I'll have an easier time. But you kind of, like, you know, use different training partners for different skills to kind of work on those skills, even if – you know, maybe overall you're higher level than the rest of the people, especially if you're like teaching a class with guys that are generally lower level. But each person is going to be good at different things. You kind of can like structure your training. And through that, being in those positions, I think, you know, and like kind of that active drilling, you can kind of figure out new ways to solve specific problems. Really try to like actively think, okay, what is happening here? What is causing this specific thing to occur? And how can I stop that? that's how i've seen a lot of the smarter people train they're using the training like as you were saying each training partner you're using them for a specific like to improve a certain part of your game instead of just oh i'm gonna do six rounds and try and win each round as much as possible which obviously is good sometimes as well but there's definitely times where you know maybe a little mentally exhausted you just kind of go through the motions and you train you're sweating 
you didn't have you, but maybe you didn't get as much out of it as, as you could. How has it been seeing the leg lock evolution through the years? Because you were one of the people who were in early days, as you were saying, doing saddle when no one, you basically automatically won the match when you did it, to now where there's some blue belts I train with who they're almost impossible to heel hook. So how have you seen the leg lock evolution and where do you think it's going to go next? Everyone's caught up, I would say. Like, you know, I feel like there's very few guys at this point who can like just go out there and like exclusively leg lock anybody, you know, pretty much almost nobody. Um, you know, I think one example is that guy, Mateusz Szczyzinski, the, the Polish guy. But I think he's doing a variation of an ankle lock that people aren't really very familiar with. Yeah. Again, it's something new that not yeah. many people have been using. Yeah. Or, I mean, like not so much now, but Lachlan with, with, uh, with 50-50, when he first started doing that, people were a little more unfamiliar with that. Generally, like like you said, I think I think with leg locks, the like the defensive skill ceiling is like very very high. You know, like I think there's some people you get to the point where you're nearly like impossible to to leg lock. I also think um, I think there's going to be and you've you kind of seen it a little bit, but like at one point, like people would almost exclusively do heel hooks. But I think like combining like toe holds, knee bars, ankle locks all together is going to really make. Uh, like make a difference and obviously people already do this but using them to get to the back using them to get on top like it, it's going to be like just like a part of jiu-jitsu not like a exclusively different different game and would you think it's worth putting a huge amount of your time into improving that last two or three percent in leg locks so that you can maybe be a bit more effective with it or would you encourage people to maybe branch out with the leg locks branch out with their positioning and things if someone wants to be like a good competitor uh that's interesting. I mean, I guess I would say depending on what they're trying to compete in, like if you're doing ADCC, which seems to be where the sport is going, I mean, I would say if you're like a 90 out of 100 in leg locks and you're 20 out of 100 in wrestling, you should definitely be, be working <laughs> your wrestling. wrestling. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you want your leg locks good enough to to defend. But I mean, even like uh, you saw Diego Pato, like he had – he had a few leg locks. He had the hip lock and the ankle lock. Um, I mean, I think if you're exceptionally good at that stuff, you can still like that. That hip lock position, Eddie came up with that. Like I know, like Junie gets a not that Junie claims to have made it up, but like Junie has probably hit it more than anybody else. But Eddie fucking made that up like six years ago, and like I remember being like a test dummy for that move, like spending like whole fucking rounds with him in that position, and. And like you've never seen it used that much. Like Junie's used it, but like never really at the highest, highest level. But like, you know, Diego Pato tapped Kennedy with it. Like that's yeah. like ADCC two medalist. Of guys. Yeah. Uh but but I've always kind of known, I was like, that move is fucking good. Like if you if you can put I've always like thought like if I can put, you know, like a world champion level guy in that position, I'm gonna tap them. You know, not not just me, but in general, you know that position. And uh, it was just cool, cool to see, you know. And obviously, that like since then, that that move has gotten a little, little bit more popular. But but with that move, like, are you? So I think, oh, that's a really good move. But then I'm thinking, supposing I do that to Paolo Miao and he doesn't tap, am I ready to dislocate Paolo Miao's hip? <laughs> like, yeah, do I want do I want to do that to him? Like, I'm not really sure. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think the injury rate is very, very high. Now people like, do I, tap, almost, but like <laughs> I would almost stop doing it in training sometimes. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like I'm afraid, like I'm going to hurt somebody. You know, uh, it's it's definitely 
it's definitely a tight position. Or the thing I find is if I'm heel hooking someone and I'm doing it really slow and steady and then they aggressively try and toe hold me or something like that, I'm like, well, do I just let him toe hold me or do I just actually put on this heel hook quite hard? Yeah. yeah. And it's those kind of tricky situations that uh, yeah. I feel like people would be getting I mean, hurt with things. Those like repositions are super, I feel like they're super, super dangerous. Uh, I think so, though. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some, not that like heel hook should be illegal, but there's like wisdom in the idea of like not being able to reap the knee in IBJJF. But I mean, I, I do think it should be allowed, certainly, like it is a black belt. But, you know, the the, uh, the level that they like would like get to where if the foot crossed that line, they disqualify you. That obviously got very stupid. When it comes to ADCC style, let's say, where would you see the next, as they say, meta over the next few years? Like what's going to be? Because the last few ADCCs, there's been slightly different winning strategies, let's say. Where would you see it going in the next two, four, six years? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, I, I I would say this year the like the level of wrestling definitely was very very high compared to previous years. Um, I would like to see. I don't know if it'll go this way. I would I would like to see more guard play overall. Like someone like Owen O'Flanagan, like he obviously had a very effective guard in ADCC. Um, obviously Gordon, like I feel like Gordon's, you know, exception a little bit, <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, he's, he's obviously used his guard, but I, I still think like using your guard could be very effective. And I still think um, like a lot of the, you know, positions you don't see as much of recently could still be very effective in ADCC. Um, at the very least, just to, you know, not even submit someone, but like just using like uh, K guard or reverse Del Hiva, like, or, or um, any leg entanglements, more to reverse people, get to their back, which you do see, but I felt like this year was much, much more wrestling heavy. I felt like uh, guys like felt like they needed to wrestle. Um, but I think I would like to see more guard work. I don't know if you will, but I would like to see that. I think also, uh, like if you look at pretty much every champion's run, like everyone had – had like exceptional defense as well. Like for example, John Carlo, like if you look at his run, like there was multiple times people had him in like rear body lock or, or four point. And I think uh, you'll continue to see the prevalence of the turtle position and like more developments from there. Cause, cause truthfully with ADCC, like from a tactical perspective, you should never get scored on from a guard pass or a sweep. You should always turtle, right? Like if someone passed your guard, Truthfully, unless the person is like head and arm control or some type of extremely tight position, I would say 95% of the time you should be able to turtle and you fight from turtle or for fight from four point. And then if you get swept, you should almost always be able to turtle, right? So like you should only be getting scored on. And I didn't really understand this until recently, but you know, I was thinking more IBJJF. Like that's how I would view a sweep in ADCC, but it's completely different, right? And and you should only be getting scored on from that, that position. And really, you should only be scoring on people from that position. Like you, you should expect the person to, to turtle. Like we're we're do, we're like starting to do our ADCC. Not, I don't want to say prep. We're not in camp. Like it's nine months away. But we're like really starting to focus on it. Like I'm yelling at my students. I'm like, if you get your guard passed, I don't care how hired you are. Like you have to turtle. That's like like doing yourself a disservice and doing your partner a disservice because that's what's going to happen. Because if you don't turtle. You're just accepting the pass. And, and I definitely get it because as myself as like a guard player, you know, I like kind of don't want to turtle, but like in <laughs> sub only, 
my back on the mat. Rolling is the worst thing you could do is give up your back. Keep your back on the mat. Keep your elbows in. All right, I'm just going to take the pass and, and get back to guard. But it's like the complete opposite in ADCC. It's almost like at this past ADCC, the turtle defense was a step ahead of the back attacks as well yeah. because there was yeah, a lot yeah. of matches where it was both people get one hook in fall off the turtle then yeah. the other person takes their back falls off the turtle uh, so maybe at the next one you'll see the attack pass out the defense yeah you're seeing a lot of guys using a lot of wrestling like not even techniques but like concepts to like control people from that position because truthfully like in wrestling i mean the person's trying to stand up on bottom. It's fucking hard to hold somebody down. And if you look at the things wrestlers are doing, it's very different than what's taught in, in jiu-jitsu programs. You know, the whole thing, like in jiu-jitsu, the most common movement from turtle. And if the person is staying in turtle, it works. Is to use some type of seatbelt to take the person's back. But in wrestling, that's like the biggest fucking no-no. It's like you stay behind their elbows. You go over the shoulder, the person's out the back door every time. And if the person's trying to get up, like if you – if you don't know to make that switch, you're going to completely lose the person every time. And how is Gordon so effective at using the guard in ADCC? Because a lot of other people, okay, they use their guard when they're already connected to them, but he seems like he can just sit down, no connection, and no one's ever able to run around him or get him in a bad position. Is it his gripping that's so good? He doesn't make any mistakes. Like what's like from training with him throughout the years, what's the secret? But I feel like Gordon's framing is, is exceptionally good. Like even if you watched his match with Nicky Rod on Fight Pass, obviously that didn't probably go as Gordon wanted. But Nicky Rod was able to lock a body lock a few times, and Gordon was like, you know, able to get out every time, like pretty comfortably. I don't think I mean Nicky got to like a decent body lock, but Gordon was able to frame frame him off. Um, I think his hands are just always in the right position. That makes sense. Like, and I think a big thing when playing guard, and this is what like I feel a lot of students struggle with, is like knowing when to switch from offense to defense. Like knowing from like, okay, I'm in a an offensive position. I'm trying to create off balance, get my offense going, and to when okay, my my like hip line is compromised, my knee line is compromised. I have to switch to proper frames to to recover myself. And I think you know he does that very very expertly because he's not doing anything like crazy uh, in his guard in the sense that he's not like he's not doing any of these like intricate like um combinations like k-guard to fucking inversion or anything like where like the person's like a little bit he's just like you know very effective like butterfly guard like very good gripping good framing like very good off balance and and like using it to get to like a few positions that he's very, very good at. That's why I'm almost surprised that he's so effective with it. Because again, he doesn't do anything overly fancy. I think if he was like a 66 kilogram guy or, or, or a 77 kilogram guy, he might need to change the style a little bit just because of the, the way he move. Um, I mean, I can't say with certainty, but that's just my thought process. I mean, I mean, it's no secret. Like some of the bigger guys are not. I mean, he said it himself. They're just not as good. But yeah, I think, I think again, I don't think he's doing anything crazy. Like even his like foot off balancing or the foot kazushi he uses, like that is fucking hard to get good at. Like it's, it's, it's like it's super hard. Like I remember trying it for a long time, and I'm still terrible at it. But like he's he's exceptionally good at it. Like his ability to like use his feet to off balance people. And until you kind of like experience it from him, it's kind of like, eh, like, oh, he's just like kicking their legs. But he's he's very good at that. I will say he's very effective with it. Like, I mean, the amount of times like I'm trying to pass him and he fucking 
just puts me on my ass with that like I guess like fuck like not again and then you know obviously he comes up and puts you down but I, I think um yeah he's very good at that very good gripping just like solid position most of the time and what would be some of your cues for switching from offense to defense because sometimes against stalling people i might have the tendency to just chase after them a bit of impatience yeah. and then you almost run into trouble and again knowing that line when to go from offense to defense yeah for, personally i definitely have run into that issue where somebody's stalling and i like get overzealous or mm. frustrated like chase after them and then like that results in them getting a guard pass you know you like extend yourself and then they like waiting for you to do that and pass um i think a general rule is like if you get caught supine with like out any grips on the person like you know generally you're more in a defensive position unless like you got really good leg work like you're trying to sit back up you know it, it could depend on what the person's doing if the person's like actively attacking body locks or front headlocks like it could mean like the opposite now you want to go supine but generally if the person's moving side to side you want to be in a seated position if the person is like actively coming forward attacking your neck body locks like i, I would say you want to be more supine if they ever step past your knee or hip line like that's definitely you know if you're like i see this all the time guys like go for like scoop like a k-guard position but they do it when the person's past their hip line like you know if your legs are on one side and i'm trying to scoop the leg yeah you're gonna get your guard pass yeah stuff like that just just like being able to make those switches. And then when you do, I think this is another thing, when you're in a compromised position and you do kind of make that recovery immediately going into your offense. So like maybe I frame, I recover my legs, their leg is still kind of close to me, I can take a scoop or an ankle grip and now start to work work my offense. When it comes to your competition career then, you've had some really impressive performances, great matches, great submissions. What would be some of the highs and lows throughout the years that stand out from like your competition career? So definitely one of the highs is, is taking second at the trials. Um, you know, that was in 2018. That was, you know, for me, I think I had six, I don't remember exactly, six submissions. And then I lost in the finals to John Sateva on a, I lost 2-1. Um, like he had a takedown, then he got negative points for stalling. But uh, that was definitely, you know, I think one of my better performances. I competed at Kasai. I don't know if you, you you probably remember that. So that's they're not really around anymore. But I competed in the, yeah I competed in the 170 pound tournament and um, that was in in New York City. It was at a place called the Manhattan Center, the Hammerstein Ballroom. It was like for me like I mean it wasn't as big as ADCC or even close. But there was probably like three thousand people there. It was pretty, for a jujitsu event. It was pretty packed. And I was in it was an eight man tournament. And I ended up taking fourth, so I went two and two. But uh, I lost my first match to Hanato Canuto. The, like highlight was like all over the internet. He like did a backflip over me, and like he didn't actually pass my guard with that. But like, but then like I had like a bad first match. But then I came back and I and like I won my next two matches. I beat PJ Barch. Um, I actually beat Victor Silverio first. I submitted him, and then I beat PJ Barch like maybe twelve three or something like that. Pretty good. And PJ actually beat me two times before that. And so that was definitely like really good to get that win back. And I lost for third place. Um, but it, it was, it, it was kind of cool because the way it worked, it was, uh, it wasn't a bracket. It was like a round robin style. So you get three points for a submission, two points for a points win, and then one point for a draw. Because if, if the match was only six minutes, if it was a draw, you, you get one point because they didn't do like an overtime or something. So like I lost the Canuto the first match. So he beat me and then he beat PJ in like a really tight match and he had a draw with Victor. But then I submitted Victor 
And I beat PJ pretty decisively. And I had him in a few tight submissions. If I had submitted him, I would have gone to the finals. Even though I lost to Canuto in the head-to-head, we ended up with like the same number of points. We had like five points each, but he had the head-to-head win. But it was kind of cool. Like I finished the match. I had him in a triangle, like an anaconda. Like if I had submitted him, I would have went to the finals, which would have been pretty cool. Um, That was definitely for me a highlight. Like when I've heard of other, let's say, high-level competitors talk about you, I think even the episode I did with Craig Jones, I was asking him about the training with Danaher's and stuff, and he said that the the worst rounds he was having were with you. Like everyone is very complimentary of your skills. So how is it hearing that then? Does that give you more confidence for the tournaments or does it put a bit of pressure on it? Or it, It's weird because like I feel like I'm almost like that guy that's like – almost like it's like developed a reputation for myself where like – people train with me they're like oh you're so good and not that like i don't think i i I don't think i'm unsuccessful in competition but i definitely feel like my like competition resume is not up to par with my skills which is like i i mean like even when i was like a lower belt i i would feel like i would lose matches that i shouldn't i don't even want to say like it's like nervous i don't like necessarily feel nervous i just i had trouble pulling the trigger in a competitive sense you know, like I wouldn't train. Yeah, the worst feeling for me is the, the kind of hesitation feeling where I'm almost trying not to lose instead of trying to win. Yeah, and if I ever feel in that mode, I always like have worse performance than I should. And it's a signal. But then if it goes the other way, I'll like outperform it. But would you ever feel any pressure training with someone who, like even in training, if someone comes and visits, I'm sure there was lots of visitors coming through the doors. Would you ever be like, oh, I, I have to be good for all the training rounds? Not really. It, it's interesting. Like I, uh, it was almost like at Hensel was like fun. Like when someone would visit, it was like it was like super exciting. Probably because it's like your home turf a little bit, you know. I mean, there was so many visitors that that have come in, and that was always a lot of fun to train. Even at my gym now, like I mean, at Sarah's, like we've had a good like we had Kenta come train here. We had uh, we have Isaac is in New York now. He's supposed to come. Isaac Michelle is supposed to come. Uh, Joseph Chen was here. Dante Leon was here for a little bit. Like at Sarah's, John Carlo came for a while. Dante came. Like we, we always had a lot of visitors. And I always, you know, never had any issue training with anybody. Um, like I, I would even say I'm almost too calm sometimes when I compete. Like I'm not like very nervous or anything. I feel like I'm pretty relaxed. But sometimes I have like, you know, get in that like defensive cycle mode where I'm like not like I would be in training where I'm like generally trying to attack the person the whole time like what would be the biggest differences in your mind between training and competition and like what little adjustments would you make for competition let's say compared to oh this is just another round in the gym obviously the intensity is a little higher in competition not that obviously you can have extremely intense rounds but like the intensity and the stakes are definitely a little bit higher you know in training it's like all right i'm gonna go for it if it doesn't work like I'm going to get another shot. Like in competition, obviously, usually have one shot to execute. I will say though, there are times in my competitive career where I, where I competed very often, and I did start to feel like I started to even out. When I competed at the trials and I took second, like I was extremely confident that day. Like I remember going to the finals match, like knowing I was going to win. Obviously, I didn't, but I think, and also tactically, I think I made a bunch of mistakes. I didn't really understand the rules like I do now. I think in retrospect, I think I would have won the match if I just had the understanding I have now. But um, and then I had a few matches after that. I faced like Mantra Kara. And he I know he's not competing really anymore. But at the time, he, he had just done the ADCC the year before. And I beat him. 
I, I, and then I was heading into the West Coast trials, which I was actually the number one seed for. So I was very confident in that. And I actually lost to William Tackett in the quarterfinals as well. And like a pretty tight match. Again, didn't really understand the rules of ADCC, but, but I wasn't really working my wrestling. And so that, that definitely hurt. Like I was like, you know, thought I was going to win. And, but, and after that, I had, right after that, I got knee surgery. So kind of uh, like right after that tournament, uh, maybe two weeks after I had like a pretty big knee surgery, I had a meniscus repair on my right knee. So I was out like nine months and like, then like COVID happened. And then I had another knee surgery. So I had one in 2019, one in 2021. So like, I'm, you know, at this point, my knee is pretty good, but you know, I've always kind of been like weaker at wrestling and like this definitely kind of slowed me down and like getting better at that. It's like, that's like the worst thing, like coming, even coming back from the knee surgeries, like this past ADCC trials, um, I was like, you know, nine months out from knee surgery and my knee was feeling pretty good, but like, I couldn't really, like, I was like up until two or three weeks before the tournament, I wasn't even sure if I was going to do it. It's like, I was kind of not feeling great. Like wrestling was like out of the question. Like, so I was like, I'm just pulling hard. <laughs> fucking and, but like recently since then, I've been working my wrestling a lot and I feel pretty good with it. So I feel like it's a skill that I could use now, but I never, I don't say I never had that chance, but I didn't have a lot of, as much of a chance to develop it because, because of these two knee surgeries that I had in two years, which definitely kind of set me back in that sense. And with opening the gym now recently with Nick Ronan, how has that changed your training, if at all? I mean, honestly, it's it's pretty similar. Like, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, I'm I'm not. I'm gonna say I'm old. I'm 33, but I I don't train twice a day as much as I used to because, like, I feel like I uh, I just want to like have more longevity. You know, I mean, I've been training 13 years and like pretty like much never took any time off aside from having knee surgeries. So I don't have any like injuries per se i would say like aside from the knee but usually do like mostly once a day twice a day a few times a week and then lift the other days um but my training is good like we have a lot of high level guys here we have visitors coming through a good amount it's like very similar to how it was prior because you know i teach the classes obviously um then train in the class i drill stuff after the class i watch footage i watch tape like i do all the things that i usually do I, i troubleshoot the same way but like since coming here, I would say the training has been you know very similar, if not better in some ways, because we have kind of like when we opened up, we got a bunch of like higher level guys from the area come and join us. So like we have pretty strong, strong room for like a, a new gym. Instead of, let's say, coaching at Sarah's, now you're more owner, head coach. How has that been? Like more responsibilities? It's good because I'll say the thing at Sarah's, like I taught a lot, but I didn't teach everything. And here, like I pretty much have full control of everything. So we have like a pretty like uh, detailed curriculum in the sense that like we're all working the same things. I feel like at Sarah's like I would, you know, I would teach my classes, but Sarah's also like is a big academy. There's like you know many different instructors. So like I couldn't make the, as much of a difference, but here like whoever's teaching, like I tell them what to do, you know, me and Nick tell them what to do. And I've noticed guys have gotten better a lot faster. And a lot of the time it comes from the top down as well. Like gyms, I would notice where it's a bit wishy-washy what things you're working on with the head instructors. It kind of everyone else is like, oh, I'm drilling this neck crank. I'm drilling this Kimura. But when everyone is a bit more focused and the coaches are trying to improve themselves, it's like everyone improves so quick then, I found. And the big focus for us is is like ADCC this year. So we have 
you know, probably 15 guys that are going to do it, that are going to do the trials this year. And that's like the big focus. So like all our noon sessions, like it's not like officially a competition class, but I treat it like such, like we're doing like ADCC focused rounds, like, and, and focusing on things pertinent to, to ADCC this year, which I think just doing that alone is going to, you know, have a big effect, but you know, on, on anybody, but I think we have like high, high quality technique here. And, and I think, um, it's going to have a good impact on all the students. And what would be your future goals? So when it comes to competition and with the gym as well? So I'm, I'm planning on doing both trials this year. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to do, do the trials like as long as I can, basically. You know, I mean, I, I, I want, I'm want to get into ADCC this year. That's a big goal of mine. Like, I think like correcting the wrestling, as long as I stay healthy, I think I have a really good chance to get in to win the trials. Um, but I want to build like a, uh, like an international level competition team here. That's a like a more long-term goal of mine. Like, you know, this year, like, are we going to have five guys win the trials? Probably not. But I think in the next, the next cycle, the cycle after that, like, I think we definitely could. That like coaching is a big uh, emphasis for me, really important. And I want to, I mean, we're on our first location, but we're already looking to expand. Like, like in our space is getting a little tight in here. We have a lot of students already. So I want to build separate from the competition team i want to you know have five six seven gyms in the next like few years like that's a big goal and then you know have like a big network of schools and then like kind of use that to get students for the competition team and have a big emphasis on, on the competition team nice i'm looking forward to seeing that best luck with it all and thanks again for coming on the show really appreciate it yeah of course man thanks for having me big thanks to jason for coming on the show I thought there was some great takeaways there. I really enjoyed hearing about Jason's process when it comes to innovation in the sport. It was also great to hear him reflect on some of his best performances to date, and I'm looking forward to seeing much more of them soon. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can support us by subscribing, leaving up to a five-star review, and also sharing it with your friends. As well, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at InsidePosition where you can stay up to date on behind the scenes content and also some previews of future episodes. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Until then, Slánagas Bánacht.